the views of the United States government. This is VOA News. I'm Tommy McNeil. An active duty member of the U.S. Air Force was critically injured after setting himself ablaze outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., while declaring that he will no longer be complicit in genocide. That is according to a person familiar with the matter who spoke Sunday to the Associated Press on condition of anonymity. The person said that the man walked up to the embassy shortly before 1 p.m. and began live streaming on video the platform Twitch. Law enforcement officials believe the man started a live stream, set his phone down, and then doused himself in an accelerant and ignited the flames. Israel has adamantly denied the genocide allegations and says it's carrying out operations in accordance with international law in the Israel-Hamas war. Vigils took place across the nation for Oklahoma teenager Nex Benedict, who died the day after a fight in a high school bathroom. Benedict was a non-binary student who said that they were in the target of bullying. Vigils were held at locations including Boston, New York, Minneapolis, and Huntington Beach, California over the weekend. Others were held or planned in several U.S. states, including Washington, New Jersey, New York, and Texas. The 16-year-old Benedict got into an altercation with three girls in a high school bathroom. Police say Benedict's death was not a result of injuries suffered in the fight, but based on preliminary autopsy results. Tuvalu's former Attorney General, Felitti Teo, has been named Prime Minister of the tiny South Pacific nation after elections a month ago ousted the last government leader. Government officials says that Teo was the only candidate nominated by his colleagues in Parliament and was declared elected Monday without a vote. This is VOA News. U.S. President Joe Biden will convene the top four congressional leaders at the White House Tuesday to press lawmakers on passing the emergency aid package for Ukraine and Israel, as well as averting a looming government shutdown next month, according to a White House official. The top four leaders include House Speaker Mike Johnson, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. During the meeting, the president will discuss the urgency of passing the aid package, which has bipartisan support, as well as legislation to keep the federal government operating through the end of September. That's according to the White House official who was granted anonymity to discuss a meeting not yet publicly confirmed. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Sunday that 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed in action in the two years since Russia launched its full-scale invasion. Zelensky said that the number was far lower than estimates given by Russian President Vladimir Putin's government. 31,000 Ukrainian military personnel have been killed in this war, not 300,000, not 150,000, not whatever Putin and his deceitful circle have been lying about, he said. Nevertheless, each of these losses is a great sacrifice for us, Zelensky went on to say. Year 2024 forum in Kiev, the Ukrainian leader said that he wouldn't disclose the number of troops that were wounded or actually missing. Israel's defense minister vowed Sunday to step up attacks on Lebanon's Hezbollah militant group, even if a ceasefire is reached with Hamas in the Gaza Strip. 
Hezbollah, which has been exchanging fire with Israel throughout the war in Gaza, has said it will halt its nearly daily attacks on Israel if a ceasefire is reached in Gaza. But the Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said that anyone who thinks a temporary ceasefire for Gaza will also apply to the northern front is mistaken. He said that they'll continue the fire and they'll do so independently from the south until they achieve their goals. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley says it is not the end of the story, despite Donald Trump's easy primary victory in South Carolina, which is her home state. She was a one-time governor there and had long suggested a competitiveness with the former president would show. Defying calls from South Carolina Republicans to exit the race, Haley traveled Sunday to the state of Michigan, which holds its primary on Tuesday. Speaking to a hotel ballroom packed with hundreds of supporters in the less than 24 hours following her Saturday night loss to Trump, Haley's campaign said that she had raised a million dollars from grassroots supporters. I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty, Washington. Today's Monday, February 26, and here are some of the stories we are covering. A former ECOWAS official says the sub-region needs unity to collectively deal with its many challenges. It is only through democratic governance that we can have sustained peace and tackle the challenges facing West Africa and indeed even Africa. Some residents of Liberia's capital voice frustration with the lack of a steady electricity supply. Ivory Coast President pardoned 51 people convicted of treason and other crimes. We'll get a reaction from the party of exiled politician John Sorrow. South Africa's ruling ANC officially launches its campaign for the May 29th general election. If issues are unresolved, it do not make sense for you to come up with new things. So effectively, there's nothing surprising about uh, the ANC's manifesto. And Israel plans to push ahead with an offensive against Rafah amid new ceasefire efforts. Those stories plus our Black History Month and a presentation and Samson O'Malley's sports are coming up on Daybreak Africa. The former executive secretary of the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, says he hopes Niger, Burkina Faso and Mali will respond positively to the lifting of sanctions on Niger. Mohamed Ibn Chambas, now the African Union High Representative for Silencing the Guns Conflict Initiative, says uh, this will allow the region to collectively deal with the challenges of terrorism, economic development, and governance. Chambas tells me that it is only through democratic governance that West Africa can have sustained peace. I think it's a step in the right direction. It means that the heads of state of ECOWAS have heeded the advice of the only surviving founding father of ECOWAS, General Gohan, who had counseled and given his advice that at this point it would be wise to remove most of the sanctions in order to create relief for the suffering population of Niger and also to create an atmosphere for dialogue to resolve the political crisis in the country. 
You had appealed and, and hoped that ECOWAS would lift sanctions on Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger. Are you disappointed by sanctions being lifted only on Niger? Actually, the sanctions have been lifted on Niger because the other countries were not facing the same level of sanctions. As a matter of fact, Burkina Faso, there were no sanctions except the normal political sanctions of suspending a country where a coup has occurred. And that is standard sanctions of ECOWAS and of African Union. Mr. Chambers, you are now the African High Representative for Silence and the Guns in Africa. Having dealt with conflicts in West Africa, how best do you think uh, Africa can overcome these many conflicts that are currently raging on the continent? My current role as AU High Representative for Silence in the Guns is what has made me to speak up in support of General Gowan's call to find a diplomatic solution to the current crisis in Niger, in Burkina Faso, in Mali. Speaking of the Sahel countries, their major existential threat right now is violent extremism and terrorism. We need to engage them, ECOWAS, the African Union, in seeing how they can be helped to fight against the terrorists, regain territories controlled by the terrorists, allow the millions of people who are displaced to return to their homes and work with them for the restoration of constitutional democratic governance. Because at the end of the day, it is only through democratic governance in which the people truly choose their leaders that we can have sustained peace and tackle the challenges facing West Africa and indeed even Africa. Mohamed Ibn Chambas is the former executive secretary of ECOWAS. He was speaking with us from the Ghanaian capital, Accra. South Africa's ruling African National Congress, ANC, officially launched its campaign for the May 29, 2024 general election on Saturday. The South African Mail and Guardian reports that President Cyril Ramaphosa presented the party's manifesto to a packed stadium. It summarized what the ANC would do differently to carry out policies like creating jobs, reducing the high cost of living, and boosting industrialization. Professor Sipo Sipi is a political analyst and the former deputy vice chancellor for institutional support at the University of Zululand. He tells me the manifesto was no different from when the ANC first came to power 30 years ago. It's uh, more of the same, but uh, one must also understand why there'll be a repeat of the same issues. If issues are unresolved, it do not make sense for you to come up with new things. So effectively, there's nothing surprising about uh, the ANC's manifesto. And uh, most importantly is that uh, that manifesto is also not that much different from uh, that of other parties in the sense that uh, the South Africans are faced with the same problems. So I do not find anything, nor did I expect anything new. 
from the ANC manifesto. But Professor, I think uh, the purpose of a manifesto is to outline what you would do. For example, the ANC wants to create more job opportunities. It's not to say that it's going to immediately deliver. This is what it says it will do when it gets into power. It has said that many times uh, for the last 30 years that has been the ANC's uh, promise to the people. And each president keeps on saying the same thing and uh, even making more promises. So the effect that uh, they are able to articulate those issues, that's well and good. But there's an issue of credibility and there's issue of believability. So what you find in South Africa today, that's why you have a mushrooming of uh, parties, is mainly to say we no longer have faith in the current uh, political arrangement. We no longer have faith in the ANC being a leader of society. That even the former president of the ANC, Tabon Beji, has been on record that uh, he will not avail himself to campaign for the ANC because uh, he cannot find any good reason and any good story to tell to the people. Because with Ramaphosa, what has happened is he has tended to reverse many of the things that were achieved. For instance, one of the things that the Ramaphosa has done in the year 2024 is the appointment of three white males into the constitutional court. And that shocked even the Black Association of Advocates. Professors, but doesn't such appointment represent South Africa as a rainbow country? Well, you have a rainbow country, but that country must also be representative. You cannot have a situation where the Africans still occupy 5% of the land. You cannot have a situation where management in the country is largely white and Africans only occupy about 10% of all senior positions in the corporate world and in government, except only when they are political appointees. Professor Sipo Sipe is a political analyst and the former Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Institutional Support at the University of Zululand. He was speaking with us from Johannesburg. Liberians are calling for help from their government to address frequent power outages in the country amid the hot temperatures which meteorologists have attributed to climate change. Liberians are suffering from shortages of electricity. Rita Jolobeduo reports from Monrovia. The constant disruption in the supply of electricity has become a major concern to many residents of the capital Monrovia. 65-year-old Beatrice Wase is under the tree in her yard, fanning herself with a rubber plate as she struggles for air. She is calling for swift intervention from the government. To take responsibility for the citizens of the country. That one can put them in power, but when they get there now, then I want more dragging. But now I'm talking that the government will come to bring current with the old man there. Can be sweating, heated. They turn a real Spanish jail and fire. They're coming from underground in the air. Yeah, we'll be dying. Now he says, so that the government can. Seamstress Miriam Kamara runs a tailor shop with 10 employees. She says the shortage of electricity is affecting her business. Sometimes we can spend two, three days without seeing current. And for me, my business are doing, we got designing machine and other things there. And when the current is not around, it's suffering a light. Because we're not really making business. The money you're getting, everything going into gas. So for that reason, how much so much you're getting from there? Josephine Dennis, a 
single mom says criminals are taking advantage of the frequent outage of electricity with some communities going several days before it is restored. For me, I was waiting. Criminal came on me. Only I and my son were here. They split the dual colors. They took my flash screen. Even my two phones, they carry it. Come on, I'm not happy. Because I'm coming on the hour, everyone can be bread. But I'm coming, go my dear. You know the same here. They hope they can be that. Even though the Liberia Electricity Corporation, LEC, recently announced that it has repaired its generators, Paul Rogers, or preacher, says he does not believe the money was spent for its intended purpose. If they really check them, that money was not properly used. I didn't say the, the budget was not part or the money was not given, but how was it used? Because if it was used for the intended purpose, we're not coming to be off and on like this. Rogers says he wants an independent body established to monitor government agencies that are service providers. Let there be a monetary body, people that will monitor electricity cooperation, not only by running after people say, oh, the bar passing meter or the stolen current, but even the people that are in the office, the people that are doing the work. Let there be a special monitoring body that will monitor them to know if what they are assigned to do is being done properly. A recent investigation by Front Page Africa, Liberia's leading newspaper discovered that power theft and the failure of the government, which is a major consumer of electricity to pay its current bill regularly, are some of the factors impeding the smooth operations of the LEC. All efforts to obtain a comment from the LEC did not materialize. Meanwhile, President Joseph Boyka has stressed the need to improve electricity generation and distribution for Liberians. For VOA Daybreak Africa, I am Rita Drabwe-Duo in Morovia. Listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Botting, Washington. Today is Monday, February 26th. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And still to come on our program, our Black History Month and Samson O'Malley Sports. A member of the Party of Exile, Ivory Coast politician Gion Soro, says Soro is ready to return home if the government can guarantee his safety. Soro, a former prime minister, was convicted and sentenced in absentia to 20 years for destabilizing the Ivorian government. The Ivory Coast government says Soro is free to return home. President Alassane Ouattara pardoned the and ordered the release of 51 people convicted of treason and other crimes on Thursday. The French news agency AFP reports that those pardoned included Kony Kamarate Suleiman, the head of protocol when Soro served as prime minister of Ivory Coast. Saibu CDB is a member of Soros Generation and People in Solidarity, the GPS party. He tells me that it welcomes the pardons. We believe this is a, a good thing because Mr. Soul to Soul and uh, some of uh, our colleagues were put in jail uh, for more than seven to nine years for some of them. We've been uh, always saying that uh, this accusation was not on any legal basis. 
But we're happy today they're out because uh, that means like today the government understand that there's no reason to give them. For us, uh, we're always hoping they can be outside, join the family and live a normal life. Does Mr. Soro feel that he should have also gotten pardoned? Uh, Mr. Soro has always said that he's innocent. Now, what we see today, we believe that uh, all of the people, you know, in this situation should be also free, you know, so they can join the family. For Mr. Soro, he will give his opinion when it's time. But for me, I think uh, he also should be able to join his family in Ivory Coast without any restriction to him. Now, is Mr. Soro still planning on returning to Ivory Coast? I mean, to plan to return wherever he is now, his main goal has always been to be with his family. And no one, even the Ivory Coast Constitution, agree and keeping Ivorian outside of the country for this kind of time. So he should be really able to join his family, you know, to be with them in Ivory Coast. And this is our main prayer today, you know, for him to be safe in his family without any restriction. So we believe that he should be in the back home. But uh, President Ouattara's government has said that he's free to return. Yeah, but we know that uh, the same government also has put some uh, accusation, you know. You were there when they said, because if you want someone to return, I mean, like... Uh, you also lift all the, the accusation on him. Like they say he's been condemned for life. And at the meantime, you cannot say to someone, come back and then when the accusation is there. So to be able to do it, to see, they can lift, you know, and dismiss all the, the lawsuit against Mr. Soro, all the accusation against him. So then he will be able to, to return. Where is Mr. Soro now? Mr. Soro, last, as I said last time, is living in Niger. That's where he's been uh, granted asylum. Aidu Sidibe is a member of Gion Soro's Generation People in solidarity with the GPS party. He was speaking with us from Paris, France. Israel says it is uh, pushing ahead with plans for a ground invasion in the Gaza town of Rafah to root out Hamas militants, even as mediators work on a new ceasefire in a five-month war that also calls for the release of more hostages held by Hamas. Views Araj Harbasadi has the story. The Israeli army on Sunday released footage of ground explosions said to be the destruction of militant facilities in the Gaza Strip. VOA cannot independently verify the dates or locations of the video. The fighting continues as negotiators from Israel, Egypt, the United States and Qatar, the Hamas intermediary, held talks in Paris to discuss terms of a deal to free what is likely north of 100 remaining hostages in the Palestinian territory. Negotiations remain fluid. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told CBS News it's not clear whether a ceasefire and hostage deal would materialize from new talks in Qatar. Hamas says Israel has denied its main demands that include an end to the military occupation of Gaza. 
as thousands joined what's become a weekly rally in Tel Aviv demanding the immediate release of hostages still held by Hamas since its October 7 attack on Israel. Police using water cannons dispersed a counter-rally where protesters held signs blaming Netanyahu for October 7. Netanyahu announced plans to convene his cabinet to discuss a push into Rafah that would include evacuating civilians. The United Nations warns more than 600,000 children would be in the path of such an assault. The southern Palestinian city of Rafah is now home to more than 1.4 million people, more than half of Gaza's population, many of them displaced by months of fighting. The United States says a humanitarian plan should accompany a military one for Rafah. We're talking about more than a million people who have been pushed into this small space in Gaza because of military operations elsewhere. It's also the area where all of the humanitarian assistance comes into Gaza to serve all of Gaza. And so we've been clear that we do not believe that an operation, a major military operation, should proceed in Rafah unless there is a clear and executable plan to protect those civilians, to get them to safety, and to feed, clothe, and house them. The overcrowding in Rafa strains a health care system already on the brink, with as many as four newborn babies sharing one incubator. Arash Arabasadi, VOA News. It's time now for Daybreak Africa Sports, and here is Samson Omala in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Monday morning to you, Samson. Good Monday morning to you too, James. We begin the sports with results from matches played across the continent in Africa Premier Club competition, the CAF Champions League. Memelodi Sundowns of South Africa booked their place in the knockout stages with a comfortable 2-0 win away at Mauritanian Club Nadobo on Saturday evening. Former champions TP Mizimbe earlier in the day secured their place in the quarterfinals thanks to their 3-0 win over the Pyramids of Egypt. Tanzanian Club Young Africans made a stunning end Entry to the CAF Champions League quarterfinals for the first time by hammering Chabab Belzadad of Algeria 4-0 in Dar es Salaam, while Asek Mimosa of Ivory Coast and Petro Luanda of Angola have already secured last eight places and Simba of Tanzania and Esperance of Tunisia are likely to join them on the final day of group marches on March the 1st and 2nd, 2024. Last week, we brought you an interview with Zambia gender-based activist Beauty Hatebe, who sponsors football teams for young boys and girls in Chungwe district of Lusaka province. Hatebe believes that football can keep young boys and girls off drugs and other social vices. Here's the second part of the interview, Hatebe Hard, with my colleague, James Barty. So when you say you personally sponsor the boys, what level of soccer or performance is your team? Do you hope one day to turn it into a professional team? We have um, communities where we develop talent of the boys and girls. And my team is one of those uh, clubs or teams that uh, develop the young ones for the national teams to get the players from. Actually now we are a registered uh, football club 
and uh, we are playing in zone 11 under the Football Association of Zambia. We are not very far from producing uh, Rachel Kundanangi. We are trying to do something at least with the, the boys and girls. And out of athletics, where Kenyan runner Vincent Kibet Langat won the sixth edition of the Africa Cross Country Championships, which took place on Sunday. Langat won the 12th kilometer race in Hammamet in 28 minutes, 31.28 seconds ahead of his compatriot Naibi Kiplimo Mayabi, who finished second with a time of 28 minutes, 40.27 seconds, while Ethiopian Genicha Dida Diriba took the third position with a time of 28 minutes, 57.23 seconds. Some 230 athletes representing 12 countries took part in the cross-country championship. Still staying with athletics, but on a sad note, Kenya's distance runner, Charles Kipkori Kipsang, is dead. Athletics Kenya confirmed the demise of Kipkori after he collapsed immediately after finishing the Mount Cameroon race of Hope in Boa, southwest of Cameroon, on Saturday. And that's it for this Monday's edition of Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Samson, have a very good Monday. Now for our Black History Month and African History Facts for today, February 26. On this day, 1928, rhythm and blues singer Antoine Fats Domino was born in New Orleans, Louisiana. Domino's first million-selling record, The Fat Man, was released in 1949. He went on to record 23 gold singles. Blueberry Hill was his most famous record. On this day in 1964, boxer Cassius Clay changed his name to Muhammad Ali after he accepted the Islam religion and rejected Christianity. Also on this day in 1926, Theodore Tiger Flowers became the first black boxer to capture the World Middleweight Boxing Championship when he defeated Harry Greb. Flowers was the first African-American after Jack Johnson to challenge for a world title. He helped to reform the image of black prize fighters with his ability to garner broad support among both whites and blacks. On this day in 1926, Dr. Carter G. Woodson started the Negro History Week. Later, in 1976, it was changed to Black History Month. Did you know that Boko T. Washington, a former slave, was the founder of the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama? Its purpose was to help educate black people so that they could find decent jobs. Washington was born a slave in Virginia. And those are your Black History Month and African History Facts for today, February 26th. And that's it for this Monday, February 26th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for beginning your week with us on behalf of the Daybreak Africa team. I am James Barton.